Good morning. It's such a pleasure to see everyone in the Lord's house this morning. I trust that everyone had a, a wonderful 4th of July holiday weekend. I hope that everyone was able to spend time with family and friends and cookouts and hopefully a few fireworks shows. Uh, so again, thank you for being in God's house this morning. Uh, we're so uh, pleased that you've chosen to worship God with us. Um, I also just want to thank Pastor Mark. I mean, he was, he's very gracious to me just now, but you also need to know that any quality I'm able to do up here is not only due to God, but is also due to Pastor Mark and the many hours he puts in with me. So, Mark, thank you very much. Uh, please bow your heads with me, and I'll open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is always a joy to be in your house, and this morning is no exception. And it's a joy because we love you, and we long to worship you and bring you glory and honor and praise. As we're about to see from your word this morning, you are so worthy of our praise. It is the reason and the purpose as to why we exist, why you created us. You are the best being in existence. Everything that you do is holy and righteous and good. All that you are is holy and righteous and good. And you give an abundance of blessings to us that are, are so precious, so valuable, and, and tragic. We, we so often take them for granted. You are holy and majestic, Lord God. And it is with some trembling that we come into your house this morning uh, because you have all authority and sovereignty. Uh, Heavenly Father, I'm overcome with just feelings of inadequacy in your pulpit this morning, so I just ask that you be with me to help me adequately convey just a little bit about who you are to your people. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to be returning to Psalm chapter 103, covering part two of the sermon that I entitled, God's Character in Our Worship. And I say returning because this is actually part one that I preached back in March of, of this year. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's been four months, but I guess it has. Uh, I chose this for the title of my sermon because... I think it is the best and most succinct description for the theme of the chapter. Psalm 103 is a chapter full of praise to God, driven by the psalmist's reflection on God's character, who he is, and what he does. And as the psalmist remembers who God is and what God does, and the blessings that he freely gives to those in a covenant relationship with him, the psalmist cannot help but worship God. As I was preparing for the sermon this morning by reviewing my previous message and, and studying the chapter again, uh, I, I was wondering, what does it mean to worship God? So I started up by looking up the definition of the word just to get a better idea of the meaning. According to Webster's New World Dictionary, worship is intense love or admiration. And according to dictionary.com, worship is the reverent honor and homage paid to God or a sacred personage or to any object regarded as sacred. But I kind of prefer this following definition, that worship is really worth-ship, that is, proclaiming the worthiness or excellence of the object. Now, why do we worship? Why do we worship someone or something? Just, I guess, two quick observations. Number one, we have a tendency to worship those people or things that we think are exceptional and spectacular, honored because they are the best. And also, number two, we have a tendency to worship people or things that we really enjoy, so much so that we like to tell others about them. And just thinking of some real-world examples, uh, I don't know if we have any sports fans out in the audience, but just thinking even locally, the, the National Football Hall of Fame, just down the, the highway in Canton, Ohio, and there's many other 
sports halls of fame across our country, and these honor the best athletes who ever ever played the sport. Uh, for those of you who've ever gone to the Hall of Fame, there's an entire room just full of uh, kind of I guess they're bronze little busts or statues of the players, so that they're forever immortalized. Cleveland, we have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, honoring the best and most famous musicians who've ever played rock and roll music. And then we have countless award shows, like the Oscars, the Golden Globes, Emmys, the ESPYs, Country Music Awards, and so on and so forth. Again, honoring what we feel are the most talented and most excellent of our uh, TV and and film and radio uh, musicians and actors and actresses. And then, of course, we have the sports athletes. So again, uh, Football players, basketball players, baseball players, soccer. Uh, we immortalize them, you know, like in baseball cards. Uh, basketball players inspire their own basketball shoes. So we have sports jerseys and posters. And in the, in the realm of business, we have the business icons, and, and they're followed and admired just because of their ability to generate great wealth and success in the field of business. In social media, we have famous and high-profile individuals who are followed by millions of people on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, uh, many with millions and millions of followers. They even have their, uh, a term for this kind of person. They're called social media influencers. Um, art museums, another example of this. Uh, it's a whole museum dedicated to showcasing the best art that, are, that people have ever produced. And then, if you're like me, I like to eat. So, you know, we've got the, the restaurants, fam- you know, vacation destinations, just things that we enjoy doing that are so cool and so great that we like to tell other people about our experiences. Now, it is not necessarily wrong or bad to appreciate the exceptional qualities in others and to enjoy excellent things. But so often, Christians can tend to worship other things more than or instead of God. It's like we get so distracted with what we have here in this life that we forget about God, or, or, or maybe by comparison, he doesn't seem quite as, quite as excellent or awesome. Do we think about God in these terms? Do we adore him so much that we have a need to tell others about him? Do we enjoy God in his presence? Do we enjoy God in his word? Do we even think highly about him? And I bring all this up because I wanted to just to... I think it's a very obvious point that sometimes gets missed, that God is the best and the greatest person in existence, and he deserves our worship. As I was praying this morning, we were created to worship God. We must give him glory. And he is worthy of our worship because of the great things he does, of his great character, and because he is majestic and sovereign over all. And these are the three points that is covered in Psalm 103, and so I always make sure we tie ourselves back to those things. And I'm going to just read Psalm 103 in its entirety here, just to, so we can get into the text. Psalm 103, a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all of your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the Son of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. 
He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more. And its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him doing his will. Bless the Lord, All you works of his, in all places of his dominion, bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, my first sermon that I did, I covered verses 1 through 14, and just because it's been so long, I just want to briefly recap the things that I covered in the first part. I'm not going to take too much time onto this, but I just kind of want to get everyone on the same page. So, David is the psalmist here, and he starts out in verses 1 and 2, commanding himself to worship God. And in this context, bless is talking about worship. It is not meaning the, the other usual meaning that we're not making God more holy or telling God to give himself more divine favor. That doesn't make sense. So in this context, it's talking about worship and praise. And then later on, as we'll see in verse 22, or as we just read, the psalmist expands this command to God's angels and indeed all of his creation. Also, throughout the psalm, whenever you see a reference there to the Lord, it is a reference to God's name, Yahweh. This is his covenant name, which God gave to Moses. This is the great I Am, with emphasis on God's holy and eternal nature. And then the psalmist starts reflecting on the the great things that God does, with a specific reference to the benefits that he gives to his, his people, those that he has a covenant relationship with. And his great blessings to us include the fact that God forgives sin. And this is a staggering statement, beloved, because without the forgiveness of sin, we could not have a relationship with God. Because we consistently and constantly sin against him, and we need to be continually forgiven so that we are not permanently separated from him, because after all, God is holy. And then also, God is the healer of diseases. And in there it says, he heals all of your diseases. And I just wanted to recap quickly and point out that this is a guarantee that when we get to heaven and have eternal, or when we get to heaven, that we will have been healed completely. That God is the great healer. And and also, while God can and does provide physical, emotional, and spiritual healing in this life, there are some who do not experience this during their lifetimes or not immediately according to the will and purposes of God. Uh, Going on to verse 4, the fact that God redeems souls. This is talking about salvation. That God gives us eternal life with him. This is an overwhelming privilege. And 
It is probably the most important gift, and yet we so often take it for granted. And then also that God crowns us with loving kindness and compassion. That everything that he does towards us, he acts in this way. And just wanted to define the terms quickly here. Loving kindness is the Hebrew word hesed, which is a deep, genuine, committed, deliberate, intentional, covenant love. It is a deep love. It is not merely a passing emotion. And that also compassion, meaning that God has a deep sympathy towards us, coupled with a desire to alleviate our suffering. That even though suffering does have its place in God's plan, God is not... Um, he's not immune to feeling hurt when we hurt, that God takes, of course, this into account. In verse 5, that talking about that God gives genuine satisfaction through good things, and that this is a contrast to things like sin and idols, which produce or which promise satisfaction but ultimately leave us empty. But everything that God gives truly do satisfy us. And in fact, since God is life itself, the end result is that your youth is renewed like the eagle, meaning that, that we draw our life from him, that we draw our strength and vigor from him. We cannot exist apart from him. And that also, verse 6, that God performs righteous deeds and gives justice to all who are oppressed. God is perfect in holiness and justice and righteousness, and while it is very likely that we're going to be... Uh, we're going to, it's very possible we can get, become oppressed throughout this life and that there will suffer injustice. We can know with confidence that God will, will deal out just judgment either in this life or the next. And then finally, the last uh, great act that God does that the psalmist covers is that he revealed himself to Moses and the Israelites in verse 7 through things like the burning bush, parting the Red Sea, the pillar of fire and smoke, and the giving of the Ten Commandments. This was an act of mercy in itself. We could not know God otherwise. And then the psalmist transitions from there, starting in verse 8, to going over God's great character. And really, he covers this in verses 8, 9, and 10, talking about God's compassion, about how God is gracious, about how God is patient and slow to anger, that he acts with loving kindness, and that he is merciful. And then to further expand on these characteristics of God, he starts with a series of of illustrations in verses 11 through, well, really it's 11 through 18. Uh, Just to recap them, um, he talks about the depth of his loving kindness in verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, to show its great depth. And that talking about how the God forgives, he forgives completely. He removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And then also in verse 13, talking about God's great and genuine compassion, he compares God to a father, and that he himself knows our frame, and so he he doesn't have unrealistic expectations of us, uh, because our our hearts are fickle and we are prone to sin. And then he continues on in this illustration in verse 15, and he's again talking about God's loving kindness. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children. So the reason that the psalmist is using this contrast in this illustration is because he is trying to show that the loving kindness of God is eternal, 
because God is unchanging and he, he is eternal. Unlike man, that his days are like grass, as the flowers of the field. So our lives are very temporal. Uh, this is a reference kind of to Israel's ecology and their environment. It's a very arid climate, and so in the springtime, when the rains come, it'll, you know, you'll, it's very common to have flowers pop up quickly in the fields. But then as the summer days approach and a hot wind blows in from the east, it kills the flowers almost immediately. And it's in that way that the flowers, just as they're there one day and gone the next, that is, that's how man's life is. And oftentimes, that's, that's how people love, too. Uh, because we're not perfect and we don't love perfectly. But in contrast to that, God is always acting with loving kindness. We, we never have to fear that God will ever stop acting with loving kindness, that we won't get to heaven and God will change, or that throughout our lifetime that God will just wake up one day and decide to stop loving us, that his loving kindness is eternal. But it's qualified there, and you see in verse 17, it's, but the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And fear here is in reference to it's a reverential respect. And there's also the, the concept of obedience here because we show that we fear God and that we respect God and we love God when we decide to obey his word. We're not being respectful to God when we sin. And so this kind of also goes into the fact that they're following the, the second half of the verse and his righteousness to children's children. What some people have thought that this means is they think that if you were a Christian, that this is a guarantee from God that he will save your subsequent generations, that your children and grandchildren will also be saved. That, that, is, not, that is really not the case. This establishes a general principle. It's not an absolute rule. There are many Christian parents whose children, even though they were raised uh, to fear the Lord and raised in a Christian household, I'm sure we all know people that they have some children and some grandchildren who end up not following the Lord for no fault of the parents. So this is not a guarantee in that respect. But again, the idea is that subsequent generations will reap the rewards or the consequences of our obedience or disobedience. Sin always produces negative consequences, while obedience brings blessing. This is highlighted in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And I'll just read it here quickly. This is a God command, you know, part of the Ten Commandments to Israel. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And again, in the New Testament, there's a somewhat parallel passage in Romans 8.28, many of you know it, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, so that when we are obedient to God and we believe him and follow his word, that there is a benefit to that, there is a blessing to that. It shows that God's favor extends to those who love and obey him. And so then as, as, we, turn, as we transition to verse 19, the psalmist turns the focus from, you know, to meditating on God's sovereign rule 
And so this is almost like prior to this, the, the psalmist had first started out with the command that we are to that that well to he, that he is to worship the Lord, and then extends again to all of us later on. And then he almost as if he gives the reasons for that again of because God's blessings and because God is, and then the the final reason is because God is a sovereign ruler. And this comprises a couple different concepts. This comprises God's authority, it comprises his sovereignty, and it comprises God's dominion over all. And so in verse 19 where it reads, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Where it's talking about that how God has established his throne in the heavens, this is talking about his authority. His throne is the highest possible authority, there is none higher. Psalm chapter 11, verse 4 reads, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. And Psalm chapter 47, verse 2 reads, For the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. And then again, this is again to distinguish his heavenly kingdom from his earthly kingdom. So his throne is indeed in heaven, but God's kingdom extends to all of creation. And again, we're going to pull a couple, of cha- a couple of verses from the Psalms to illustrate this. Psalm 93, 1, The Lord reigns, he is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established, it will not be moved. In Psalm 96, 10, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And then in Psalm 99, verse 1, the Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. So we can see a couple, a couple patterns and commonalities here that clearly God's word says that he reigns, that God is in control that it is he that firmly established the world. There are, there are some people in, in, in the news today that will have you believe that there, it is going to be some ecological disaster or maybe some political uh, tragedy that will end the world. That is not the case. The Lord is in control of everything, and the world will not be affected or ended outside of his will and his purpose. And then, going to God's sovereignty, I wanted to define this for you. Sovereignty means that God answers to no one. That God is supreme and he is in, has independent authority from anyone else. Just trying to think how to illustrate this, I was thinking of, uh, just in, like in the case of a sovereign nation, if you're talking about world politics, it makes its own decisions and is independent of anyone else. It answers to no one. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 reads, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. And Romans chapter 11, verses 34 through 36 reads, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And this, of course, is the Apostle Paul quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, and Job chapter 41, verse 11, as he writes to the church in Rome. And then finally, God is sufficient and needs nothing from anyone else. Acts chapter 17, 24 and 25. The God who made the world and all things in it, 
since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And finally, that God has dominion over all. And what this is talking about, when one has dominion, that encompasses the legal right as well as the power to rule, and God has both. God has the legal right to rule because He is God, He is all-powerful, and He created everything. And then again, God has the power to rule because He is omnipotent. This is part of God's character, that He has the power to do everything in accordance with His will. I was struggling somewhat to try to come up with more of an illustration to kind of highlight this, just because in our, in our time period in history, in American culture, we have difficulty relating to this concept of a sovereign ruler with absolute authority. And so I was just kind of throwing a couple questions out here. What is your closest encounter with someone in a position of power and authority? Maybe you've been pulled over by a policeman, or maybe you've, had, uh, maybe you've been in court where you've uh, seen a judge or been in a courtroom or a Capitol building, or maybe you've seen, uh, you know, in, in real life, a governor or someone from Congress. This is really the closest we can kind of come to in our culture when we're thinking about someone with some authority. We're used to, to democratic concepts in our country with separation of powers and checks and balances. We're one comfortable with the idea of any one person having ultimate authority. But, but God presents himself in his word as a mighty king who holds all authority in himself. Um, this is going to be similar to, for those of you history buffs out there, the kings and queens of medieval Europe. Or if pulling examples from the Old Testament, this would be like from Pharaoh in Egypt from the book of Exodus, or King Nebuchadnezzar from the book of Daniel, or perhaps King Ahasuerus from the book of Esther. And of course, this is just speaking only of God's authority these rulers were all mere men, and God is very different. He is perfect and holy. But I wanted to illustrate the idea of when you go before someone that has ultimate authority, it changes how you interact with that person. You don't go into their presence flippantly or carelessly. For example, in, for, you know, in the book of Esther with King Ahasuerus, it was said that if anyone entered his throne room unannounced or uninvited, he, that person ran the very real risk that the king would have you executed for the mere fact that you came into his throne room without permission, that he didn't will it. So again, this is a bit of an extreme example, but this should, this should influence and this should color how we view God, not that he is cruel or that he is um, irrational, but then the fact that you don't come before God carelessly, that there is a certain reverence and awe and respect that goes along with that. So again, we see from God's word that he is great and majestic, that God is kingly and all-powerful, that he rules in holiness and righteousness, and that he is perfect and, a no, and the noble Lord of all. And that kind of transition, transitions us to the, the final verses of the chapter, verses 20 through 22. Now that David the psalmist has stated the reasons why to bless the Lord, he reiterates the command to bless him, except this time he expands the scope from just himself to all of creation everywhere. And then he starts in verse 20 with the holy angels. I'll just read it real quickly here. Verse 20 reads, Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. And then continuing on to 21, Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him doing his will. 
So a couple takeaways just in those two verses, talking about the angels, they are, they are highlighted as being mighty in strength. And then beyond that, their obedience to God's word and his will is stated a few times, and so this is emphasized, and that means that it is important. Why does the psalmist command the angels to worship God? If we understand that the angels are already doing that, that they always obey God perfectly all of the time, it it seems a little odd that the the psalmist would again command it here. Again, if they're already doing it, why, why issue another command? And also... I think this is just an argument of the greater, from the greater to the lesser. So that the idea is that if the mighty holy angels, who are far more mighty and strong than we are, if they are commanded to worship God, and they do in fact worship God, and they are obedient all the time, then mankind should also be constantly worshiping God as well. This is just another illustration to show God's glory and majesty. His heavenly hosts are around his throne worshiping him all the time. And I wanted to give you just one more illustration of this. So please turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And as you're turning there, I'm going to set the scene, just so we can kind of get a better understanding of the passage. This passage is taken from a chapter in Revelation where the Apostle John is shown a glimpse into God's throne room in heaven. And I'll read it here from the NASB, starting at verse 6. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now these four creatures here mentioned are the cherubim, and they are a class of angels frequently referred to in the Old Testament in connection with God's presence and his power and his holiness. They are continually praising God around his throne, proclaiming his holiness. And so again, I just want to set the the image for you in your mind that God is surrounded in heaven, around his throne, are many, many, many angels, his hosts of heaven, who are constantly praising God day and night. And if they are doing that, how much more so should we be doing that also? That is really the standard. (laughs) And then also, kind of moving on there, into verse 22. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. And this kind of triggered me to go look at Psalm, verse, or Psalm 148. And you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. Talking about how the whole of creation is invoked to praise the Lord. Starting at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He has also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. 
Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and winged fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and virgins, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven, and He has lifted up a horn for His people. Praise for all His godly ones, even for the sons of Israel, a people near to Him. Praise the Lord. And so here you can see the psalmist again talking about how all of creation worships God, even the inanimate objects. But, but how can impersonal things, how, like fire and hail and wind and mountains, beasts and creeping things, how can these things worship the Lord? Well, I think I would suggest to you that they worship the Lord simply by the fact that they exist and they are doing what they were created to do. I think when we think of worship, we, we tend to think that that always has to involve singing. But, but that's not the case. And so I just wanted you to see an example just in Scripture how it's everything in all of creation worships God, or at least it should. Mankind is really the only thing God has created that, that does not give him glory. And then finally, Psalm 103 concludes with David the psalmist, talk, once again talking about, Praise the Lord, O my soul. As if to say, let this worship of the Lord start with me. It's a good attitude for all of us. And so the psalm ends just as it began with a personal, internal command to worship the Lord. Beloved, we must worship the Lord, and He is worthy of our worship. But even more than this, it should be our deepest desire to worship God. God does not want grudging obedience in this. He wants worship from a heart that loves Him and is grateful to Him. I suppose it is true that we could just simply praise God just because it is commanded to do so, but that's really not what God has in mind. We should want to do this because God is worthy of our worship, because of who He is, because of what He does, and because He is the majestic and mighty ruler of all. God is good. God is awesome. And He is the most excellent being who exists. He gives us great blessings in abundance, His character is amazing, holy, and perfect, and he holds dominion over everything. And that he is also better than everything and anything else that we enjoy. In fact, he is the source of all good things. He is life itself, and he is the one who gives our lives meaning and purpose. We are his works, and we were created to love and worship God, and also to be ruled by him, to serve him and enjoy him forever. Psalm chapter 145, verse 10 reads, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. And yet, tragically, our our sinful flesh resists this reality because our fallen nature wants to be independent from God. We want to rule ourselves, but if you think about it, it is actually a great and amazing thing that we are destined to be in service to such a great God who loves us so deeply. If you are a Christian this morning, you can take joy in the fact that your destiny is to be with God forever in heaven, loving Him, worshiping Him, enjoying Him, and serving Him for all time. 
This text has so many applications to our lives, but the one I want to leave you with this morning is that I want us to focus um, on increasing our, that increasing our knowledge of God and meditating on Him should lead to a greater love of Him and joy in our lives. You cannot love what you do not know. And so as we close our service this morning and look forward to our week ahead, it is my prayer that we will take this knowledge of who God is and how richly He blesses us every day, and it will cause us to echo the prayer of the psalmist, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Please bow your heads and I will dismiss us in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so worthy of our praise. And this morning I'm just, I'm just reflecting on how often that I don't do that, Lord. And how often I get distracted with the other things of this life who are not nearly as awesome as you are, Lord. We tend to get distracted with other things and we think that life is really about pursuing other things other than you whether it's uh, money or fame or pleasure or what have you, we get distracted so easily, Father. And yet, as we saw from your word this morning, you are so gracious and merciful to us, Father. You love us so deeply. And Father, we are so grateful for this. We, we want to always remember who you are and the blessings you give us. Uh, and just the fact that you are our sovereign king, you are not to be taken lightly, Father. And so I want to just please be, uh, just pray that you continue to be with us, Father. If anyone here this morning doesn't know you, we, I just pray that you will make yourself known to them and, the, and that uh, they will turn in obedience to your word. And for all of us, Lord, I just continue to pray for your sanctification in our lives, Father. We, we want to make our worship of you the central aspect in our lives, Father. Not just um, trying to obey you, but also just desiring you just to learn more about you by taking quiet times with you and studying you in your word. Father, give us the ability, the greater ability to love you and to love others around us, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.